Welcome to the Exposing Pseudo-Astronomy podcast for yet another example of astronomy misconceptions, mistakes, half-truths, and conspiracies. My name is Stuart Robbins, and this is episode 41 for the fourth quarter of June 2012. The topic for today is the final edition of the Month of Dating Techniques. So we're going to talk about Young Earth Creationism and their take on Crater Age Dating. Unlike radiometric dating, where the creationist arguments are incredibly varied and creationists will argue about everything from the fundamentals of whether radiometric dating even works to the subtleties like carbon sinks, their arguments about craters are generally more on the subtle side. This is probably because it's hard to deny the basic fact that craters form and if something has more craters, it's older. So this episode is going to have around four different claims that creationists try to use in order to disprove old ages from those craters. And I'll say right off the bat that none of them are that the chronology from absolute age dating of lunar samples that give us those billions of years for the moon is wrong, because radiometric dating is wrong. They don't usually link these together. I couldn't find any of the creationist sites that I looked at that claimed this particular thing. Perhaps it's too obvious, or perhaps they're just unaware of the basic calibration of how we tie ages to crater densities. Maybe they should listen to my podcast. So I'm going to start this out without a specific claim, but rather a few small claims put out by the Creation Wiki website against craters. And just for completeness sake, this is also copied on the Conservapedia website. The first objection is that our estimates of how long it takes craters to appear to degrade over time due to space weathering is wrong, and that new research suggests that it's much faster, quoting a NASA person who stated that space weathering, quote, takes place very rapidly on the moon. So you know that the terms... Space weathering is where tiny particles that are high energy stream out from the sun can impact the surfaces of objects or atmospheres. These tiny particles don't do much of anything by themselves, but over many, many years, and with so many of them, the effect adds up and can both chemically and physically change a surface. In asteroids, for example, it leads to a general reddening of their spectra or their surface color overall. Unfortunately, the Creation Wiki's reference for this is no longer active, given that it's an internet article from 11 years ago. After a lot of searching, I was able to find the original story archived on a mailing list that I'll link to in the show notes. The article says absolutely nothing about space weathering beyond the non-quote that I quoted, and all of the current research that I know of still says that it takes around a billion years for space weathering to remove just crater rays on an airless surface such as the moon to say nothing about actually removing the crater itself. So it's up to the creationists to still prove their point here. You can't just shoot out a claim and expect that you have to refute it. You have to shoot out the claim or spit out the claim or write the claim or whatever with the claim and then back it up. The creationists haven't done this. The second of three problems that the Creation Wiki article points to is a claim from Peter Brown of the University of Western Ontario, where he, quote, insists that there is absolutely no criteria for dating of craters. 
This would seem like a damning quote from a scientist that creationists are often fond of, but as with most creationist quotes from scientists, this one has been mined to death. The subject of Brown's quote is that he was discussing whether or not a 1953 photograph of the moon showed an impact event as it was happening. If you read the actual article, and I'll link to it, Brown was saying that in the context of being able to date one specific crater to a 50-year time frame, in that sense, he's quite right. There is absolutely no certain criteria that we can use for getting an age like that unless someone actually saw it happening, which this article is talking about and looking for independent evidence to back up the idea that this particular crater corresponded to a flash of light photographed in 1953. Even if we could get there and grab a rock sample from the crater's melt sheet itself, we would still not be able to use any radiometric dating technique that we know of to get an age to the 50-year level of accuracy, and none of the techniques for dating rock let you get ages this young either. So yes, in that very narrow sense, there is absolutely no method for obtaining an absolute crater age date. However, this does not mean that the entire thing needs to be thrown out the door. Creation Wiki's third argument has to do with ghost craters, which is the first solid main subject that I want to get into in this episode, even though we're almost six minutes in. Ghost craters on the moon, the claim goes, mean that all of the lunar maria formed at the same time in just a matter of days, meaning that the cratering rate was much higher than, quote, secular scientists think, meaning that everything fits into a literal 6,000-year time span. It's a claim put forward by the young Earth creationist astronomer Danny Faulkner. It's also quoted in general in almost all discussions of craters and ages in young Earth creationist literature. Unfortunately for them, the entire idea behind this claim is based on a false premise. In the moon's history, we think there was a period of time around 4.2 to 3.8 billion years ago that corresponded to a heavy bombardment spike of impactors. One popular model to explain this is called the Nice model, because it was developed over beers by four dynamicists while at a conference in Nice, France. The model says that Jupiter and Saturn formed closer to the Sun, and that a few hundred million years after they formed, their orbits were excited and they interacted with each other, dancing around, and settled eventually into their current orbits. Now, it's an actually much less hand-wavy theory than I just made it sound, but that's really the basic idea. When Jupiter and Saturn, these two very large, very massive gas giants, are moving around, this is going to disrupt and excite the asteroid belt, and, the theory goes, it sent a lot of debris hurtling towards the inner solar system while this was going on, causing the heavy bombardment. And there actually is a lot of evidence for this happening. The bombardment corresponds with when the majority of the largest lunar basins formed, and those basins on the near side are presently filled with flooded lavas, and we see them as the darker mare regions. Based on all of the geologic evidence that most geologists and most astronomers have, the basins formed and they thinned the crust under them because they excavated about 10 to 20 kilometers. 
they were perfectly fine just being big, deep craters for a few hundred million years. But over time, magma reached closer to the surface, and that was able to breach the crust in the thin areas, where these basins were on the near side. That's what flooded them. So, there was a long period of time during the heavy bombardment when a lot of craters formed in those basins. Then, they flooded. The larger craters within the basins had rims that were high enough to sometimes still poke through the lava, or they caused a circular hill in the solidified lavas because the lavas flowed over them. These are what are referred to as ghost craters. What Dr. Faulkner says, though, is that the formation of the basins themselves almost immediately caused a breach of the crust that caused magma to pool and flood. The fact that ghost craters exist, according to Faulkner, means that the cratering rate must have been incredibly high so that enough craters would form in the day or two between the formation of the basins and the flooding of the volcanism, or the volcanic flooding. Hence why I said that this claim is based on a false premise. Besides not fitting with the geologic evidence, it doesn't match with very basic physics. When a crater forms, it heats things up. When a basin forms, it heats things up a lot, and it's going to melt rock nearby, forming what we call impact melt, melt formed by the impact. You can use very basic thermodynamics to calculate how long it takes the rock to cool. In fact, I saw someone do this on the board in 30 seconds during a donut hour morning when we were discussing some news article at work. Anyway, you can use basic basic physics to figure this out. For basins a thousand kilometers across, the time scale is somewhere on the order of thousands to tens of thousands of years on the moon. Again, this is a very well-established physics that, if wrong, would have implications for things like how long it takes water to boil or for soup to cool down. As I said, it's basic thermodynamics, meaning that unless you had God cooling the rocks really, really, really fast, craters would not be able to form at all in the time between when Faulkner wants the basins to form and magma to pool to form the lunar mare. So ghost craters wouldn't be able to form if you had an impact or hit melted rock, you're not going to get a stable crater forming. The next claim is that lunar craters were produced first during the fall, then during the flood, and that the lunar maria formed immediately after the fall. This is another model put forward by Danny Faulkner, and he did so in a 1999 edition of the venerable Journal of Creation. The basic problem, of course, is that normal scientists say that craters have formed over the last 4.5 billion years, but creationists somehow have to fit everything into 6,000 years. Faulkner uses the argument about ghost craters that I just explained as a fallacious argument in order to claim that the cratering rate must, absolutely must, have been higher earlier on in the moon's history. This means that if the rate was then much, much higher, you can compress 4.5 billion years into 6,000. Very basic math indicates that you would need a cratering rate of around a million times more than what we've estimated for the rate back then, which itself is around 10,000 to 100,000 times more than what we think it is today. That's an expletive load of impactors. You'd think that the ancient civilizations that were around that we have real documentation from 
that creationists don't dispute would have noticed 100 billion times the impactors that we see today. But they don't. The real crux of this argument requires that all of the lunar maria, all those dark parts, formed at the same time and formed very quickly. Faulkner argues that it was the initial formation of these giant craters that actually caused them to be flooded by volcanic material, as I explained earlier. So, when Faulkner assumes that the impacts that formed these must have only happened in one small part of the moon and not at all on the far side, he's wrong, and that's another key part of his model. The impacts happened all over. It was just the near side that later flooded with volcanism, likely because the core is offset and the crust on the near side is much thinner. But that's another episode. I realize that the last minute or two may have sounded fairly technical, so I'll summarize. Faulkner assumes one thing from science, but he's wrong. He takes that assumption from actual science and then uses it to shoehorn in a 6,000-year timescale. He does, however, propose two tests of the model, but one of them produces something that is non-unique to that model, and the other that he expects to be false is actually true. Something that Faulkner's model cannot explain is that craters that formed after the Maria, which are all supposed to have been in place during Noah's flood and so formed at the same time, actually show a range of ages. This range is seen with the brightest of the rays from those craters. Craters that still have bright rays, such as Tycho, that has rays that can be seen over the entire near side of the moon, are younger than those that don't have rays because the rays disappear with time. This is space weathering that I talked about earlier in this episode. We estimate that craters with rays on the moon are roughly a billion years old, and those that don't have rays are older. Since the Maria formed about 3.5-ish billion years ago, and we do see both kinds of craters, rayed and unrayed, on the Maria, then this doesn't really work with Faulkner's model. There should only be one type of craters on top of the Maria. The final main claim that I want to talk about in this episode is about secondary craters, which is something that I mentioned at the end of the last episode, or at least at the end of the main segment. To recap from that one, the basic idea behind crater age dating is that craters form randomly over a surface, and they form in a statistical rate through time, or at least not the basic idea, but the two main assumptions that really need to be true in order for crater age dating to work. A primary impact crater forms when an extraplanetary bolide, or impactor, hits the surface and it has enough energy for an impact crater to be excavated. This will launch an ejecta blanket, and there can be cohesive blocks of ejecta that were launched as part of it. If those blocks are large enough, they can form their own craters, and we call these secondary. Secondary craters violate both assumptions of crater age dating because they occur neither randomly with time nor randomly across the surface. Secondary craters can be separated into two somewhat artificial classes, what I call near-field and far-field. And I should also mention that I've published on both, and the reason this podcast is two days late getting out is that I'm near the end of writing a grant to fund me to study these in more detail. Near-field secondary craters generally form in a ring around the primary crater and are within about three crater diameters of that primary. 
They look different from the primary craters because they're formed at lower impact energies, and they're often asymmetric, highly elliptical, and are found in chains and clusters and look a lot more beat up than primary craters do in general. Far-field secondary craters are usually harder to find and to trace back to a parent primary because, by definition, they're far from their parent primary. The large 1,000-kilometer Oriental Basin on the Moon launched secondary craters over halfway around the Moon's surface. I published a paper last year where I identified somewhere around 2,000 to 3,000 far-field secondary craters from a 220-kilometer diameter primary on Mars, and these far-field craters were up to 25% of the way around the planet, or about 5,000 kilometers. The issue of secondary craters was first pointed out in the 1960s by Eugene Shoemaker. Those of you who are older than 20 may recognize that name with the comet Shoemaker-Levy 9 that in the 1990s hit Jupiter. It was generally, it being secondary craters, ignored by most of the community until the past decade when higher resolution images for many of the solid surfaces in the solar system showed that this was actually a problem that we need to understand. And the subject of secondary craters is still hotly debated in the community. One group says that these are a huge problem with smaller craters, and that any craters smaller than a kilometer or so can't be used for age dating because they're likely to be secondaries. Work on Mercury, done by some people that I work with, suggests that the cutoff there is more likely to be about 10 kilometers for where secondary craters start to become important. The other group says that there's such a pervasive background field of secondary craters that these were included in the standard functions that we use for assigning absolute ages, and so we don't have to worry about them because they're already in the counts that we use to date surfaces. The creationists logged on to two 2005 papers that really set the planetary community on notice that these were an issue that we needed to deal with. One paper was by Beerhaus et al., who looked at craters on Jupiter's moon Europa and found evidence that up to 95% of all small craters on the moon were secondaries, thrown out by just one or two large craters. The other paper was by McEwen et al., who studied a fresh young crater named Zunil in one of the youngest areas of Mars, and they estimated that up to 10 million small as in meter to tens of meters sized craters surrounding Zunil were secondary craters formed by that impact. For a quote mining creationist, this was perfect news, and one of them succeeded in writing an article entitled Crisis in Crater Count Dating. But, if you've been following this discussion, you'll see that there is not a crisis in crater count dating. The issue is that we don't know the level of contamination to what diameter range at small diameters the secondaries are an issue. All the research has shown that on every solid surface in the solar system, with the exception of Mercury, you are quite safe from almost all secondary craters if you are using craters that are larger than about 5 kilometers, which most people do. The fine print is that there are always some exceptions. For example, that 1,000-kilometer diameter Oriental Basin on the Moon has nearby secondary craters in long chains where each crater is around 20 kilometers across. But, 
A happy feature of secondary craters is, as I mentioned earlier, that they look different from most primary craters, and the Oriental secondaries can easily be excluded from any crater counts by anyone who knows what they're actually doing with identifying secondary craters from primary craters. Something that's discussed even more rarely than craters in creationist writings is Venus craters, and this is sort of a disproof of the young Earth creationist claim about craters. As an overview, Venus has very few craters on its surface, though it does have more than Earth. The number is around a thousand. Based on our chronology from the Moon that I talked about in last episode, this means that Venus's surface is only around 700 million years old. The current thinking is that Venus suffered catastrophic flood volcanism around 700 million years ago because it doesn't have plate tectonics to release its heat. It just kept getting hotter and hotter and hotter until finally the crust cracked and the planet was resurfaced. Obviously, 700 million is not 6,000. But there is a deeper problem here. If you want to have a consistent chronology between the Moon and Venus, then you have to take that creationist idea of the Moon and scale the number of craters forming per time interval up by around a million, meaning that Venus was completely resurfaced 700 years ago or less. This raises problems for the formation timescale of a lot of other geologic features that happened after the resurfacing that we do see today. A way around this for creationists is to argue that Earth and the Moon are, of course, special. That God caused just Earth and the Moon to experience a huge flood of impactors, literally because it happened during the flood, much as I discussed earlier in this episode. So, you get back to the problem of the chronology for how quickly craters form. It's something of a back-and-forth argument, as you've probably figured out by this point, that, in the end, won't really leave anyone that happy. There's no new news to discuss this week, so I'm actually going to go to a Q&A. The reason is that I've gotten several crater-related questions that I'd like to discuss in Q&A, so I'm going to forego skipping it in this and episode 43. So, this episode's Q&A, Q, comes from Expat, who you might remember me interviewing in a very early episode of my podcast. This is actually a question that was repeated by several other people, but I'm quoting Expat's version. He asks, is there statistical information about the angle at which incoming rocks have struck, say, the moon, to create craters? Common sense would suggest that a perfect 90 degrees would be a rare event, and yet most craters seem to be perfectly circular or nearly so. I guess another way of asking this is, can oblique impact create a circular crater, and if so, how? The answer to this question is that this particular aspect of the formation of craters is not that intuitive. You'd think exactly as Expat said, that only craters that hit something at a 90 degree angle are going to produce a circular crater. The average impact angle is actually about 45 degrees. Your common sense tells you that only a 90 degree impact should form a circle, because if you chuck a rock at an angle into dirt, you get an ellipse, not a circle. Instead, a better analogy is to throw a rock into a pond. 
you get a circle almost regardless of the angle, unless that angle is very, very shallow, and we're talking somewhere around 10 degrees here as being shallow. This is a better analogy due to the viscosity of water versus rock, viscosity being how quickly something flows, and the velocity of throwing a rock versus a meteor about to strike a planet. The velocities are so high when a meteor strikes that it's effectively an explosion, and that explosion is going to be very close to circular almost regardless of the impact angle, as opposed to you throwing a rock into sand, and that's not an explosion. Experimentally, we expect that craters will start to look elliptical when the impact angles are below about 10 degrees. This is borne out in both lab experiments and computer models. It's also been shown to be roughly the case in observations. Surveys have been done, including my own research, and I've published twice on this, and these surveys generally back up the modeling and experimental results. There are also some subtle effects of crater diameter, where the larger the crater is, and here's where we're talking something on the scale of a thousand kilometers or more, the more elliptical it will be. So take, say, 10 kilometer diameter craters. Chances are only around 5% that the crater will form as an obviously elliptical one to the human eye. But once you get to thousand kilometer size basins, chances are closer to 15 to 20% that it's going to look elliptical. Models show that the distribution is pretty flat between about 5 to 100 kilometers, and it's significantly less in smaller sizes and significantly more at larger ones. So, when you look at all of the nice, new, pretty pictures from the high-resolution cameras in orbit around Mars or the Moon, and you see a lot of small craters and they're pretty much all looking circular, that's because they shouldn't actually form elliptical unless they're impacting at a very, very shallow angle. So that wraps up this Q&A segment. If you'd like to submit a question for consideration, please use any of the feedback methods available, although the easiest is probably just to send an email to podcast at sjrdesign.net. Now, since I'm getting this episode out a bit late, I'm skipping feedback for this week and the puzzle will return in the next episode. Maybe. Two quick announcements. First, a reminder that I'll be at TAM this year, and I finally got my plane tickets. I'll be getting in in the very late afternoon on Wednesday and leaving around noon on Monday. There will be a CosmoQuest meetup as well on Sunday at 6 p.m. that I'll link to in the show notes. I will be there, Pamela Gay will be there, and the noisy astronomer will be there among several other people, including at least one listener to this podcast. I leave from Vegas to go to NASA Lunar Science Forum at NASA Ames on Monday through Thursday. There will be another CosmoQuest meetup during that time that Pamela and I will also be at, that I'll also link to. And, speaking of CosmoQuest, we are just a few weeks out from that conference where we hope to present some of our first science results. Well, not hope to, we will present some of the first science results. You can help make those science results even more meaningful by heading over to CosmoQuest.org, going to the Moon Mappers section, and helping us to identify craters. I will link up to this in the show notes for the episode, and a blog post or two about what science we're trying to do with that data. And I should also mention that due to these conferences, there is a distinct possibility that a few episodes in July might be delayed, 
much like this was delayed by two days. Um, it's just an inevitability given that I have two conferences, a travel of 10 days, and I can't really record while I'm on the move, and I do have to prepare for at least the NASA conference. So I thought I'd give you that heads up, just in case. With all that said, and with this music, that does nearly conclude this episode for the final episode of June 2012. This is episode 41. Thank you for listening, and I hope that you enjoyed it and learned a little at the same time. For more information about this podcast, or podcast, please visit the website at podcast.sjrdesign.net. If you have any feedback, please use the feedback form on the website, send an email to podcast at sjrdesign.net, or leave a comment on the page for this episode on the website. I do say that fairly quickly, and it is hard to say at some points. I read every email and appreciate the feedback. If you have suggestions for topics, please feel free to make them. If you like this podcast, please do write a review and rate it on iTunes or other places, and tell your friends, family, and random internet people that you happen to speak with. Thank you.